Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is my colleague Tim Perkins. Good morning Mr Hasler, how are you? I'm very well mate. Um, how are you going for bog roll? Uh, well you know, I've decided to start a new business actually. Because What's that? There is very little toilet paper going around town at the moment so I've decided to go into production <laughs> of bidets. Oh nice, yes, very yes. nice. We're going toilet roll free. I've, we've had yeah. many, many calls right. for our bidets. Yeah, bidets used to be kind of like a nice to have but now it turned out you, you <laughs> need to have them. It's an essential requirement. <laughs> it's a curious thing, isn't it? Like what, why, what well, is going on? Well a bidet is a curious thing <laughs> well, in itself indeed. really, isn't it? It's but very European. Um, it's very European yes. but I think we're becoming very Euro. Indeed, very, as, as, as the UK becomes less so, <laughs> Australia becomes more so, fair enough. Yes. Alrighty. Um, today is um, a Q&A episode where we uh, take questions from our listening community and actually the bulk of the questions um, that for today came through um, my Facebook page so and, and LinkedIn as well. So um, I think we'll jump straight in. I think, Tim, you've got the, the first question. I do, Daniel. What's the difference between a leader and an administrator? Hmm. Well, I think... Um, we typically define it the way a lot of um, the literature defines it in that leadership is more about sort of, I guess, challenging the status quo, um, whereas administration or, or management is more about maintaining the status quo. So the leader challenges, the manager or administrator maintains. And so you think about that in the context of um, your organisation, your role, you know, is largely um, defined in, in your roles and responsibilities document, but it's probably more defined by the tasks and the, the processes that you find yourself doing each day. So if you find yourself looking after, uh, you know, compliance and accountabilities and, uh, you know, looking after rosters and things like that, you could probably classify yourself more as a, an administrator or a manager, despite what your title says, as opposed to the leader who is probably, to some degree, perhaps getting out of the day-to-day the -day and being able to see the bigger picture and, and thinking more strategically, thinking more long-term. Um, I'm... I would certainly suggest um, that most roles in most organisations, particularly the higher up the organisational chart you get, you're going to have a mix of both. You know, so the the, the leader uh, will probably have uh, elements of management and administration in, in their uh, task. But the challenge really is is being mindful. I think of if, if we notice one of these is taking over to the detriment of the others. So we've probably all worked with that person who's the big picture thinker, but doesn't really know how to apply it, doesn't really know how to um, roll something out. Whereas we've probably also worked with people who are really good at the compliance side and the managing the processes and keeping the business ticking over, but less good at the bigger picture, the where are we going to be in 6, 12, 18, 24 months time. So the difference largely is, I think, in the way in which you find yourself working. Do you think, Dan, that um, perhaps leaders, the true visionary sort of leaders, the ones at the, at the front end, you know, the, the vanguard, do you think they're being thwarted by increasing administrative responsibilities and 
my guess is I know where you're going to go with an answer to that, but if that is the case, how do we get around that so that these visionary people, these big picture people, these people who are really looking down from the balcony and thinking about what's ahead uh, and taking people along on that journey with them are not restrained by incredible accountability and administrative responsibilities? Mm, I think in the work that we do, we certainly see um, that across... um, all domains, actually, I'm thinking of people in particular here where um, they're kind of across things that they don't need to be across things, particularly if they are, you know, if we'll use the, the sense leader in a classical sense. So they should be looking at the big picture, um, being strategic, and yet they, they're they really, you know, in the the minutiae, you know, the, the day-to-day kind of stuff. They're in, they're over... They're over managing. They need to be across everything. They need to know every single detail. And that sometimes is a personal choice. You know, the amount of leaders who we spend time working with who say things like, it's just hard for me to let go of the reins. Mm. You know, um, I just like to be in control. That um, is not um, specific to one area you know that'll be happening in corporate it'll be happening in sport absolutely um and it also happens um a lot as we see in in education and education i guess has that added um challenge of a lot of leaders uh, are answerable or responsible for what the department or the system is putting down to them so you know, it's it's as though, and this, um, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, it's as though sometimes the departments of education around the world, not just uh, in Australia, seem intent on quashing any um, space, time or inclination for true leadership. It's, it's as though every year another accountability measure comes in and, uh, or another form that needs to be filled or another, you know, data gathering exercise Mm. has to be embarked on which at some point or another and to be fair I think that most principals most leaders we've met have reached that point a fair time ago where it's it's just too much and and the it's like leadership big picture planning it's that's a you know it's a luxury they're just too busy in in the day-to-day grind trying Mm. to get stuff done so your answer how to do it um, I think, and, and you'll certainly see, you know, I, I know of leaders, particularly, as I say, in education, who have actually pushed back. You know, they work on that um, philosophy of it's better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. So they just end up doing stuff. Um, and then, ironically, um, these are the ones who are held up by the department as being brilliant, and yet they've gone against what the department have said. So I'm thinking, for example, of Eddie Wu, who, um, you know, was using YouTube in teaching when YouTube was banned by the department, Uh, you know, and now, of course, he's been uh, held up as a, a, and you know, he's a great bloke, we both know him, um, but uh, but he's being held up as the exemplar of of what we need to do. So I think it's an interesting one where um, it's obviously a lot of the time safer to, it's safer to to keep your head down and, and complain. It's safer to do that. But I think those true leaders, those true visionaries, um, they're not interested in playing it safe and they'll, and they'll push back. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I, I find this fascinating because, you know, and Eddie's a really good example of this because he did buck the, the system um, in the way that he managed it. And if you think of all the people who would have missed out um, if he had just stayed with that. And so for me, he is a visionary, he is a leader. Hope you're listening, Eddie. Um, 
perhaps leaders need good administrators around them to allow them to truly flourish, to do the thing, because not everybody is a leader. I mean, a lot of people get put into leadership positions and I think the, the correlation between having a leadership position, having that written on your door or your email um, and actually being a leader, you know, we, we've all worked with enough people to know that not all people in leadership positions are truly leaders. Well, it's that classic um, line, isn't it? Leadership is a behaviour, not a title. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, you, you, you might get the, both at the same time, but a lot of the time it's one without the other and yeah. we all know the people we'd rather be working with absolutely maybe we should move on to our second one Dan. all right well our next question mate i'm going to throw it to you um it's actually from the same question so that first question uh came from bruce in in queensland and um he actually asked us a few questions in the one post and uh this is one of the other questions he asked he, he wanted to know who's best placed do we think to decide what is required on the front line yeah, we had a bit of a chat about this one earlier, Dan. Um, this this is interesting, isn't it? Because it, it should seem quite obvious. Who is best placed to decide what's required on the front line? And I think, you know, one response to this is the person who's got the most information. Um, sometimes, you know, the classic example I think of is in, say, a school environment where there's a certain amount of information about a student, for example, that a teacher may have, and they want to make a decision based on that. But then perhaps there are higher-ups who have more information about the, the family situation of that student or the background information of that student or anything else that's going to um, add to the repertoire that's going to help us make decisions on behalf of that person. Um, some of that information can be confidential. So we've got an example, you know, another one if we move outside of schools and think about what's happening, uh, what happened with the bushfires over the summer in Australia you know, there are certain people who are briefed with more information than others. And, of, of course, um, we as the citizens uh, want certain actions on behalf of the people who are making decisions on our part. Uh, but they really need to be very informed by the people who've got the most information. And I think we saw real leadership from Shane Fitzsimmons there and real credibility because he clearly was being briefed with all the information. So... You know, and there's there's good reference there to the front line as well. Mm. Who's best place to decide? You know, there's there are ways of informing ourselves more in an organisation, and one of them is a is a tactic that that you and I use a lot, Dan, and and that's this idea of an appreciative inquiry, where we really walk into an organisation and ask them. You know, because we we don't know the context of the organisation and uh, to ask them what it is, what does this place look like when it's really firing, when it's really humming, when it's really at its best and to start to develop that information and then once you get that. And I suppose in the corporate world, one of the examples of this is this idea um, of coming into a, a 360 sort of process where you just gather information from a variety of sources. Mm. The more informed you are, the better decisions you could make presumably yeah. i think um another phenomenon to recognize is that the in a lot of cases you know the person who is least um informed um to start with at least the person who's least informed um around what's required on the front line is often the leader you know the further away you get from the front line it's a common phenomenon um in in all walks of life the less in touch you are with the day-to-day, -day, the less in touch you are with what it's actually like. So, you know, the, 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 
the head of sales has forgotten what it's like to be the new salesperson in their first week on the job trying to you know orientate themselves the the principal has forgotten what it's like to be a teacher in their first couple of years teaching you know the the coach perhaps has forgotten what it's like to be the new um you know first grade player just out of uh, juniors you know not quite sure uh, again how to find themselves and so you know, appreciative inquiry is one example, 360 is another, but certainly, essentially what we're saying is, you know, honouring all the important voices. So in the corporate world, you know, honouring, the obviously there's that saying about the customer's always right. Well, that's probably not always true, to be fair, but understanding their point of view is absolutely important to make um, smart decisions on the front line, understanding what it's like for the people on the production line with the people in the face-to-face sales roles, understanding their challenges, not just the bottom line from the boss's point of view, not just you know what their KPIs are from their point of view, but really understanding the bigger picture. I think um, you know we often talk about the concept of personalizing work, which is a somewhat tricky word. People think it's a typo when they see it in our vision statement, but it comes from the work of uh, Ed Shine, who talks about, you know, really getting to understand your people. And so it's not personalizing it in sort of tailoring programs. It's just putting people at the center of what it is we're doing, really understanding their challenges, walking in their shoes, empathizing with them, so we can make decisions which, we're not always going to be able to make win-win decisions, of course not. But what we are able to do is make decisions f- with the most information possible. Just as you're talking there, Dan, I'm thinking, who is best placed to decide? Obviously, the person with the most information. However, when that person has that information, who are they getting it from? And maybe getting some really disparate voices in the room to inform them. Mm. because just being on the executive of a particular group doesn't necessarily mean you have the best views. To get someone who's perhaps got a radically different view um, could be extremely in, valuable. In many cases, you'd probably find people arguing you, you definitely don't have the best view. You know, that's mm. why initiatives like design thinking and, you know, and, and appreciative inquiry have really come to the fore a lot mm. in strategic planning because they've recognised that the people sitting around the leadership table don't necessarily have the info. They don't have the strategies and tools to make decisions, but that actual data, for want of a better word, the stories, the narrative, mm, yeah. perhaps that's um, where they, they've been lacking. And certainly um, more um, forward-thinking organisations are definitely recognising that um, we need to get as many voices, as many stories into the picture as possible. Yeah. All right. Um, we might move on to our third question for today. Now this one for you, Dan. Question is how to be an inspirational and motivational leader when people already feel they are overwhelmed? Well, it's a really interesting um, premise that if we know people are already overwhelmed, what are we trying to inspire them or motivate them to do? Because I think for me, if I knew that people were overwhelmed, then I'd be trying to inspire them or motivate them to address that. And I'd be trying to, as a leader, I'd be trying to see, well, what can I do in order to address that? I've got a bit of a working um, Instagram meme at the moment, which I'm thinking of rolling out today uh, at a conference shortly. And I'm, 
it could be that it's already out there, but you know, there's no new ideas. But the idea, if you want to get more more out of your people, you need to put more into your people. And so, whether that's um, you know more time into them, getting to know them, personalizing your work in the way we've just spoken about, whether it's putting more time um, or money or something, you know, more resourcing around them so they don't feel overwhelmed. You know, that that feeling of overwhelm is. I'm being, I don't have the tools or the capacity or the resilience to handle what it is I'm expected to do. So as the leader, I'd be taking a step back. For, for The last thing I'd be doing is trying to inspire them or motivate them to do anything else. Certainly, um, I wouldn't be doing that without recognizing the need to inspire them and motivate them to stop doing something Right, so the the challenge a lot of organisations have is that there's a lot of really good stuff happening, and in order to do more good stuff, you've got to stop doing some good stuff, and that can be a challenge. In some organisations, it's easy. There's a load of crap stuff happening, which actually we should just stop, you know, straight away. Um, but in a lot of places, there's good stuff going on, and people have invested time into it. They've invested money into it. They maybe have taken on a sense of real ownership of it, a sense of identity, which in turn can lead to overwhelm because it means so much to them. They just keep putting in. And so I go back to the premise of the question that if the start point is you know people are already overwhelmed, I'd be inspiring them and motivating them to recognize that and thinking of ways and strategies for us to be able to take some of the weight off. Yeah, I think that the opportunity to be inspirational and motivational is absolutely prime if you feel that the people you're working with who are working with and for you are overwhelmed that's exactly when inspiration and motivation is required because inspiration and motivation is going to give people the incentive to have another look at what it is that they're doing and perhaps start to do things differently and that that's what inspiration really is about i was inspired by this person and it actually dragged me out of this sense of overwhelm that I was feeling. I realised that I could do things differently. Um, and that's exactly what we need in all of our organisations, people, leaders who genuinely are inspirational and motivational. Um, and I think the, the relationship providing is, as you know, Dan, you make that point very clearly, don't give them more work. That's not what this is, uh, is about. But that certainly wouldn't fit under the heading of inspirational and motivational anyway. But the idea is to say, well, you know, I've got a vision and we're going to do things that are really going to inspire you as a, as a middle manager perhaps to inspire the people that you're working with and, and that could well drag you out of the overwhelm. It sounds a little bit like um, you know, Simon Sinek often talks about you know, finding your why and how that can be quite powerful um, in clarifying the, the, the behaviours, clarifying what it is that we're actually doing. I wonder how many people have kind of lost touch with that to some degree. I imagine, I'm, and I'm guessing here, but I imagine that a lot of people who feel overwhelmed have actually reached that point where they're going, I, I can't see why I'm doing it. I can't see the point of this. I'm doing it, and I'm doing it to the best of my capabilities. I, I don't feel that's enough, and I couldn't even tell you really why I'm doing this. It's no longer in line with who I am. I'm, I, I say I'm, I'm somewhat summarising there, yep. um, but it'd be an interesting exercise. Um, because for me, here's the thing, you know, a lot of the time we end up doing a lot of things which aren't aligned with our why. They're aligned with somebody else's. And again, you know, you've, you've speculated, and I think you're probably right. Um, I think this is from Joe, who's a, who is a teacher, um, who, you know, again, 
the why often comes from somebody else. Yeah, it comes from the department, it comes from politicians, it comes from the media. You know, and and if we end up um, being swayed too easily by that, and we end up working to somebody else's why, I think that's a one-way ticket to overwhelm in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. All right, well, look, staying on that theme um, of overwhelm, let's yeah. actually let's maybe it is that theme. Our last question is around well-being, and it's a is a lovely one-line question. It says, "Well-being <coughs> is yoga and mindfulness enough in toxic working or learning environments?" Yeah, is it is it a good enough cure? Um, yes. No, oh no, <laughs> facetiously, yes. Get the beanbags no. out. <laughs> um, well, look, of course it's not enough. And, you know, there's a few things to unpick in this question. So is yoga and mindfulness really a good enough cure for a toxic work or learning environment? No, of course it's not. Um, un unpacking what exactly a toxic work in or learning environment actually is, um, is part of the issue here. And trying to work out why a learning environment has gone toxic um, is something that, will require a fair bit of unpicking and uh, there are a lot of contributing factors. However, in relation to the sort of activities that someone's going to do to increase their own well-being, the concept of doing activities that are going to increase our level of self-awareness and our ability to centre ourselves so that where, you know, I, I think we've spoken before on a previous episode about an amygdala hijack, this idea where we're just our, our reptilian brain is just responding and reacting in strong emotional ways. To be able to dial that back a little bit and calm ourselves and bring ourselves into a centred situation so that we can deal with whatever it is, whether it's a toxic work environment, whether it's a, a very difficult leader that we've got, whether it's particularly difficult people that we work with or for, whatever it is that's made um, this situation worse, how do we manage ourselves so that what we bring to that situation is different? I had a friend uh, who I used to play footy with who I ran into him one day and it was pouring rain. I said, how's this weather? And he said, you carry your own weather, Perko. And I think that really does have a big impact um, on how we manage ourselves in our environments. And the people who seem to be least overwhelmed, the people who seem to have the strongest sense of well-being, are the people who have given up on trying to manage things that are out of their control, such mm. as the rain, um, and are looking after themselves um, mm. in a way that they can manage whatever the situation is. Yeah, that question we often ask is, you know, how, how do you show up? Um, or more importantly, how do you want to show up? How do you want to walk through the door as the best leader, the best colleague, the best teacher, the best parent, the best partner? How, how do you want to walk through that door? And having that sense of self-awareness, of understanding when the pressure's on and um, what tools and, and um, strategies do we have in order to get back to being the person that we uh, want to be? So previously, a few episodes back, we spoke with um, Adam Fraser, who um, talks a lot about the third space and, and the idea of being able to literally uh, either have a third space between, um, say, work and home. A third space could be the gym or going for a walk where you have the opportunity to sort of reflect on the day, recover from the day, and then reset for the day or reset for the evening perhaps, you know, so you walk in as the best parent or partner you want to be rather than just taking a bad day at the office so it means a bad night at home 
another way of thinking about it isn't necessarily a physical space, but just a, a, a gap, a, a moment in time between what's causing the drama and your reaction to that drama. You know, as Tim mentioned, some of the most um, well-balanced, if that's the right word, people we meet are those who recognize that really the only things that you can control are your own behaviors and actions. So you can't control what's happened, but you can control how you respond to it. And that may influence others around you to to act in a certain way so the idea of well-being you know in a toxic culture this isn't a get out of jail card for other people by the way to act like complete lunatics because you know oh well it's up to you how you respond but it's certainly part of the puzzle how do we show up i think you know in a sort of symbiotic relationship is that then the 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 pool in which we're swimming you know the 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 environment in which we go to work and i would um, recommend um, maybe having a listen to episode 20 where I was chatting with Amy Edmondson, the author of The Fearless Organization, because I think just having conversations and more understanding of that concept of psychological safety, you know, psychological safety allows people to speak openly and talk about things and, you know, candor is is expected. So what's interesting in toxic cultures, candor, candor is expected or it's undermined. You know, people are narcs people are undermining each other people are saying what they think but just not in the most uh, conducive of ways not in the most productive of ways they're in ways which you know make people feel unsafe psychological safety is the concept where well we're going to create conditions here where people can still they can get that stuff off their chest they can have an opportunity to be heard in a respectful professional uh, manner and so I, I really do think um, if, if you listen to that episode, Amy talks about, you know, psychological safety is kind of like the soil um, in which we plant, you know, initiatives or we plant our um, colleagues. And, and it's that the quality of that soil as to whether, uh, you know, if that soil's toxic, then ideas and colleagues wither. If that soil is, you know, really vibrant and it's based around social, uh, psychological safety, then those initiatives and those colleagues can really flourish or, or thrive. Yeah, and and we can all have an impact. I mean, if you've got a, if we go back to the garden bed, you know, analogy that you're using there, Dan, if it is toxic, um, for you know, let's use that term. If it is a toxic sort of soil base that you're using, then maybe it's partially our responsibility to change the ph level mm. of that soil with the way that we manage ourselves self-awareness as i mentioned before is a really interesting concept because we often think about self-awareness it seems so self-explanatory self-awareness yeah i understand myself i understand my motivations i understand how i respond to certain things i understand my behaviors uh, they've been a long time being built and i get them that sort of self-awareness is super important but it really only makes up 50 percent of the picture the other 50% being that concept of how do other people see you. Mm. And so activities like, you know, we mentioned before a 360 or a, another version of that known as the Jahari window that we do with a lot of our people that we work with really gives people an idea of how do they uh, look to other people from the outside. And so taking some – and, you know, I'm, I, I feel enormous empathy for anyone who's working in a toxic environment. We've seen several of them and they are not fun places to be. However, if you're there and if you're planning to stay there, what can you do mm. to osmotically um, impact what's happening around you? How can you carry your own weather? Mm. And, and again, I'm just going to touch on uh, episode 20. One, one of the things that Amy spoke about was 
to resist that urge to look up and say, come on, bosses, you know, you sort this out. Um, because obviously sometimes maybe it's the, the boss that's causing it, but more so we expect the boss to, you know, what can I do? I'm not the boss. Whereas Amy says, you know, very much in line with what Tim's saying, is saying, well, what can you influence? At the very least, you know, even if you're not, even if you don't have any leadership um, position at all, you're most likely a colleague. And so what can you do just in a one-on-one interaction that can help make it less toxic just between you and your colleague? And that is an incredible, it sounds small, but it's a really incredibly powerful um, way of going about things because absolutely we can control that. And then slowly but surely it can it can spread. And one of the lines that you often use, Dan, which I really like, is this idea of we get more of what we focus on. So if you're walking around with your colleagues going, oh, my God, this environment's so toxic, it's it's impossible, the leader's a nightmare, it's toxic, it's toxic, it's toxic. The more you focus on that, the more you're going to find that, the more you're going to get of that. So twist it around. And it's not about being Pollyanna, as no. we've often said before, but twist it around and, and find the positives and be the positives mm. and and start to get that coalition of willing people around you to, uh, you know, develop your own culture there because it doesn't have to be toxic. Beautiful. All right, mate. Well, that's a a good place to to finish, I think. Um, If you found this useful, um, there's a fair chance that somebody in your network will find it useful. So please uh, make sure that you share it as far and wide as you can. Also, if you enjoyed it, please make sure you leave a uh, rating, a comment, because uh, that just helps other people find um, this podcast on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get it. And of course, make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss our dulcet tones whenever they drop. Um, If you have any questions that you would like us to tackle in the Habits of Leadership, then head over to habitsofleadership.com. Click on the podcast page where you can find past episodes and you can leave us questions, you can leave us insights, you can suggest, um, you know, perhaps potential guests. Maybe you yourself would like to be a guest on the Habits of Leadership. If you do, just head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page. But until next time, thanks for joining me, Tim. Thank you, Dan. And take care and take it easy.